any resolution of the North Korean problem doesn't have to be a zero-sum game between the United States and China. They both want nuclear weapons off the peninsula. And so if you talk to Chinese policymakers or strategists about North Korea, they are not as concerned about the ICBM threat because they don't feel like they're the target of it. But they are quite concerned about the nuclear tests because it's happening on China's border. Those, um, those provinces that sit on the border feel like they are being affected by these nuclear tests. In the last six nuclear tests, the ground was shaking. I don't know of a military solution today for this problem that would not also result in uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of casualties on the U.S., South Korean, and Japanese side. Hey, welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI, and for this episode, I had the chance to sit down with Dr. Victor Cha. Dr. Cha is the Director of Asian Studies and holds the D.S. Song Korea Foundation Chair in the Department of Government and School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. Before that, he spent three years as the Director for Asian Affairs at the National Security Council. So he brings both an academic and a practitioner's perspective to our conversation about a very pressing challenge, North Korea. What should we make of the considerable uptick in North Korean nuclear and ballistic missile tests? What are the best tools that the United States and its allies should bring to bear against the North Korea problem? He answers these and other questions in a fascinating conversation. A couple notes before we get started. First, if you're not subscribed to the MWI podcast, you can do so on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you are subscribed and like what you hear, please just take a second and leave us a review. It really helps us reach new listeners. And as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, let's get to the conversation. Dr. Chaw, thanks very much. I kind of want to, I guess, start first by asking uh, you spend a lot of your time looking at East Asian security. Uh, Korea has been in the news, obviously, lately with more nuclear tests, ballistic missile tests and things. Can you kind of give a, um, a sort of a foundation for the discussion of kind of your big picture overview of what the current trends are in terms of the you know, broadly, broadly defined security situation in the Korean Peninsula and, and, and the broader region? Sure, be happy to. First of all, let me just say it's great to be here at West Point. Um, I grew up an hour south of here, so this is uh, all neighborhood territory that's familiar to me. So great. it's really great to be here this, uh, this morning. Um, in terms of broader um, trends in Asia, you know, I feel like the U.S. administration is still less than a year old. Um, and in Asia, there are a number of constants, I think, in terms of security that they encounter. Uh, the first of these, of course, is the rise of China. Uh, and to what extent that rise can be shaped in a way that China does not seek revisionist goals or intentions in the region and is focused much more on uh, trying to, to maintain or stay within the current post-war liberal international order created um, and under, undergirded by the United States. Um, 
So that, you know, that was a problem that the previous administration has to deal with. It is a problem the current administration has to deal with. Um, uh, the second constant, I think, is uh, the allies. Uh, the cornerstone of U.S. policy and posture in Asia has always been our alliances, um, our military allies, our uh, friends and partners, political friends and partners, um, with which we have access arrangements, not just, uh, not just political relationships or economic relationships. And uh, those two things are connected in many ways. Um, our ability to uh, follow a strategy that can manage China's rise or contend with China's rise and challenges that are posed by that are directly a function of the health and the resilience of our allies and partners in the region. Um, without one, you can't really do the other. Um, so those are the two things that are constant. I think the new things, and one of the, I would say one of them is a challenge and one of them is an opportunity. Um, the challenge, of course, is North Korea. Um, the level of military testing of weapons programs by North Korea was quite high during the Obama administration. There were something like um, um, uh, over 70 missile tests and four nuclear tests during eight years of Obama. <clears throat> and in the first few months of Trump, we're already on a pace to to, to uh, do more. The North Koreans are on pace to do more than what they did under eight years of Obama. Um, that is a definitive shift. Um, a, a, a continental ICBM capability by North Korea is becoming close to very real, uh, as well as uh, miniaturized nuclear devices that they can mate with that, which pose a direct security threat to the homeland of the United States, something we really never had to deal with before. I mean, there was always a threat on the peninsula or to the region, but never to, to the homeland. And so that's a big challenge and is the one that we see most uh, forefront in, um, in the international security agenda today. And then the opportunity, I think, really is uh, looking uh, west. Uh, if you're in East Asia, starting to look west to India and the Indo-Pacific. Um, there is, uh, there has been really since the George W. Bush administration, uh, much more of a systematic effort by the United States to engage India, uh, both in um, political and economic terms, as well as in terms of uh, um, uh, maritime coordination. And I think this is an agenda that, um, Again, started under George W. Bush, it continued under Obama, and I think it's something that the Trump administration is also going to push uh, um, in, a, in a very uh, forward-looking direction. So, um, so there are things that we're familiar with in terms of what's happening in Asia, but there are also some new things uh, and some uh, new challenges and some new opportunities. Uh, you did exactly what I was hoping you'd do, and you, and you gave me about four or five things specifically that I want to ask you um, mm -hmm. if you could talk to a little bit more. The first of those is the um, North Korean weapons testing. You noted the, the trend, the upward trend in terms of their frequency. Um, why is that? Um, I think there are a couple of reasons. One is domestic um, in the sense that the step increase in testing really starts to take place as the new leader starts to come into position in North Korea, even before his father dies, uh, the previous leader of North Korea dies, uh, Kim Jong-un, the current leader, his rise to power really correlates with 
an increase in testing. So there's something domestically happening there in terms of, I don't know if it's domestic legitimacy or something. Um, the other element is that um, what looks like a conscious decision to move from an experimental testing program to a military testing program uh, with the goal of trying to get to a survivable ICBM capability uh, while this young fellow is, is still in office. That probably is the single most important uh, reason for uh, the step increase in testing. And um, you'll notice that both of those things, that those, both of those variables that I talked about are internal to the state. So in other words, I don't think that the increase in testing is because there has suddenly been an increase in the external threat to North Korea. Um, to the extent that a threat exists, and from North Korean eyes it probably does exist, I would say it's been constant over time, um, uh, and maybe even decreasing in the previous administration because of the strategic patience policy, which basically said we, that we're not going to deal with this issue. Um, um, so I think these are largely domestically driven, uh, and, um, um, and I think in their own minds they feel like they're succeeding uh, because they have seen rapid improvements far beyond most people's expectations in terms of their capabilities over the past year. Um, and so I, from their perspective, I think they see light at the end of the tunnel and they are pushing as fast as they can to get there. If the, if the drivers are primarily domestic, uh, what limitations does that place on ours and our allies' efforts to influence those, to uh, slow the progress, say, of, of, of those development programs? It, it's a great question and it is very hard. I mean, I think it's very hard. Uh, we have to remember that regimes like this are insecure dictatorships. So uh, in a sense, they always feel insecure, no matter how much military power they have, um, they always feel mil uh, insecure. I mean, Stalin was always paranoid, right? I mean, that's just the nature of the game. <clears throat> um, and then in terms of trying to change their capabilities, I think the only thing that can be done and what is being practiced right now is to try to reduce the means by which they can attain these objectives. And that means uh, you know, this universal sanctions program that has uh, been ramped up in the last six months. And I think it really has been ramped up in the last six months um, to try to essentially reduce the funding that's available to them to carry out these tests and to develop these weapons. I mean, North Korea is a country that doesn't have a lot of money and uh, the sanctions are aimed at making it harder and harder for them to access money so they can carry out and, and build this weapons program that they're trying to build. Um, on that, on, on, on the issue of sanctions, uh, maybe this is sort of a technical question, but you know, we know there have been a couple of now rounds of unanimous votes on the Security Council increasing, um, increasing the sanctions. How much space left is there to continue increasing? If this is kind of, you know, the, one of the most important tools, we'll say, uh, that, that we have at our disposal, the international community has at its disposal, how much more could they be ramped up before really you can't tighten the grip any further? I think there's a lot more room. Um, this whole idea of rank, ramping up sanctions, um, it, it, it is informed by the sanctions program that was implemented with Iran. Um, and um, there have been studies that have compared the sanctions packages against North Korea, you know, prior to the last six months 
with what existed on Iran um, in the previous administration, and there really is no comparison. I mean, the level of sanctioning was much higher against Iran than it was against North Korea. Of course, there were things that have long been in U.S. law, like trading with the Enemy Act and sanctions as a result of their, of their doing nuclear testing, but still the level of sanctioning was not nearly uh, as significant as it is now. And the biggest piece of that was, of course, the, um, the flow of material and money that was going between China and North Korea, which was really outside of any sanctions regime. And bit by bit, um, part by part, uh, that bilateral interaction has now been brought more under the sanctions umbrella. And that is probably where we're seeing one of the biggest changes in terms of sanctions effectiveness on North Korea, which has really been um, the, um, uh, the fact that a lot of Chinese activity now has come under, has come under sanctions um, with the proactive support of the Chinese government. That's, that's one of the, I think, um, themes that you hear is that a solution to uh, the North Korean problem uh, such as it is has to involve China. Um, can you give any other examples or maybe talk a little bit about how else, practically speaking, uh, China can play a role mm -hmm. in, in, in containing the threat that North Korea might pose? Yeah. yeah. So I think, um, well, first on sanctions, if a year ago I had said to you that China would be sanctioning one-third of its oil and oil products to North Korea, would be cutting off all um, seafood trade with North Korea as well as textiles, uh, and that the People's Bank of China would be sanctioning all of its um, financial relationships through itself and through subsidiaries to North Korea. If I had said that to you a year ago, you would have said that's never going to happen. right? And that's basically where we are today, right? Uh, that is the level of sanctioning that's being taken against, against North Korea. Something like over two, almost $2.7 billion of North Korean exports annual have now been cut off, sanctioned. Um, <clears throat> so these are very uh, significant steps. And there is clearly more that China can do in this respect. But I think from a broader strategic perspective, what... Um, what I think some people hope would happen between the United States and China is not just this tactical sanctioning, but a dialogue that took place between these two countries about the future of the Korean Peninsula and how to think about contingencies on the peninsula, how to think about potential collapse, how to think about even military confrontation. Um, there needs to be a dialogue that takes place between these two countries uh, because any resolution of the North Korean problem doesn't have to be a zero-sum game between the United States and China. They both want nuclear weapons off the peninsula. I think they both, although they won't, can't say it, really don't like this leadership in North Korea. So there, there are non-zero-sum outcomes here, but without any dialogue or communication, it can easily become a zero-sum game between the two sides. And, you know, though... Um, you know, we may have lots of problems with China's rise in the region, what they're doing in the South China Sea, what they're doing in the Taiwan Straits, what they're doing in the East China Sea. I think it's pretty fair to say that for on both sides of this issue, nobody wants a war that would involve the United States and China on the Korean Peninsula again. That would be disastrous for everybody. So um, 
that's sort of the next level, I think, of U.S.-China um, interaction over North Korea. I mean, we're now at the level of the sanctionings, sanctioning package, and President Trump has made this a very important metric of the overall U.S.-China relationship, the, the China's cooperation on this. But really, the next level is whether these two countries can have a strategic discussion about how to manage, how to manage this problem. You mentioned that, that it, um, that the current administration has, has made this a centerpiece of the U.S.-China relationship. Um, is there anything else that you can point to that explains the change, um, that explains how, you know, you said a third of, of, of oil uh, going into North Korea is now sanctioned that the seafood industry, um, is there, has there been, uh, have there been Chinese domestic drivers of that? Has the government kind of just reached a threshold where it says, Sort of enough to some extent. Um, so I, I certainly think uh, there are some domestic drivers in the sense that uh, you have a Chinese president that is uh, that is um, uh, up for renewal, if you will, right, with the Party Congress. Um, they don't want to. They and because of that, because um, you know this Party Congress will basically anoint him for another uh, period as leader. Um, they don't want a crisis uh, as this transition is taking place, uh, and they don't want bad relations with the United States. Right? And so for that reason, when President Trump and Xi Jinping met for the first time in Mar-a-Lago in April of 2017, uh, it was very clear that the Chinese wanted a good relationship with the United States, uh, and Trump was pretty clear that this was the issue on which there had to be positive um, movement. And so I think that is certainly one aspect of it, the domestic politics, if you will, of China's Communist Party. Um, the other element of it, I think, um, has to do with um, the nuclear testing by North Korea, which is taking place in a mountain, the same mountain, the sixth test in the same mountain that's on the border with China. Um, and so if you talk to Chinese policymakers or strategists about North Korea, they are not as concerned about the ICBM threat because they don't feel like they're the target of it. But they are quite concerned about the nuclear tests because it's happening on China's border. And they're not concerned for proliferation reasons or for other reasons. It's very parochial in the sense that those, um, those provinces that sit on the border feel like they are being affected by these nuclear tests. In the last six nuclear tests, the ground was shaking um, when they did this test. And so in that sense, there's domestic pressure on Xi Jinping and the, and the CCP to deal with this issue because people in their own provinces there are complaining that this is, this is outrageous, that this shouldn't be happening. So. Wow, interesting. Mm -hmm. um, you also had, um, you sort of, in, in the first, answer that you gave to the question that I asked, you talked about um, uh, China's rise, uh, we talked about uh, China's role in, in sort of countering um, the threat, so to speak, from North mm -hmm. Korea. If we look sort of over a, a longer term hot time horizon and think back to the Cold War and containment strategies, is this, and, 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 and forgive the sort of clumsy terms, but is the th threat or the challenge that North Korea poses something that we should be trying to contain 
or trying to defeat? So um, I think that there are certain constants in our policy and strategy to North Korea, uh, regardless of which direction the problem goes in. Um, and the first of these, and they're very logical, the first of these constants is as the threat increases, we need to increase our defense and deterrence capabilities. Um, and that means with our allies, uh, particularly Japan and South Korea in the region. Uh, I think that means sort of enhanced missile defense, um, uh, better trilateral cooperation on ISR, um, uh, even strike capabilities, uh, whether it's autonomous or dual key strike capabilities. These are all elements, uh, an up-tempo of military exercising, these are all elements of defense and deterrence packages that, that are required on the peninsula and in the region as the threat increases uh, from North Korea. And that's something, regardless of administration, regardless of politics in any of the three allied countries, is something that you just need to do as long as we have mutual defense treaties with those countries and as long as we have, what, 400,000 American citizens and soldiers who live in those countries. Um, so that I think, now you can call that containment, you can call that whatever you want, but that is absolutely necessary. Um, um, defeating the threat obviously is harder because uh, I don't know of a military solution today for this problem that would not also result in uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of casualties on the U.S., South Korean, and Japanese side. Again, the number of, if we just talk about Americans, the number of Americans in Korea and Japan is basically the population of a medium-sized U.S. city, right? St. Louis, Missouri, Corpus Christi, Texas, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. That's, what, that's what's at risk. And within a warning time, if you talk about North Korean artillery, of less than a minute, it's measured in seconds. Um, so. There are many military options with regard to North Korea, uh, some of which can be very effective and devastating, but we always have to understand that, that that comes, and we will win that war, but that comes with significant costs. Right? And then the question becomes, do you really want to start a war to avoid a war on the Korean Peninsula? Um, and so that's the predicament. And that's what makes this problem, in terms of defeating it, you know, one of the hardest problems that the United States has ever had to deal with. I mean, the Middle East is difficult. You know, the, um, the defeating ISIS is difficult. There are many things that are difficult, but the parameters, the geometry of this problem makes the, the military solution difficult to contemplate unless you're willing to accept a large, large number of casualties that come with that. Uh, you also mentioned uh, as one of the constants uh, partnerships and alliances, um, and I, I think it's probably um, comforting to hear that called a constant because I, I think that um, there's been some public or media speculation about the constancy of some of those relationships mm -hmm. and um, and um, certainly U.S. commitment maybe uh, is a better way of saying it in the region. Um, the treaties, of course, are there. They're, those are those are constant. If you look at things like public opinion data in South Korea and, and their and public sentiment about um, the relationship with the U.S., that seems to have fluctuated. There are other things that fluctuate a little bit. Um, 
what, what, how would you characterize right now sort of the state of um, those of the relationships? And I'm talking particularly about the key ones with South Korea and Japan, I think. Yeah. So I think the relationship, starting with Japan, I think the relationship with Japan is very good. Um, allies come together when there are threats. And very clearly, China's activity in the South China Sea over the past few years, as well as in the East China Sea uh, and the North Korea threat, have really brought the United States and Japan even closer than they have been in the past, whether you're talking about um, uh, naval cooperation or missile defense. Um, this is a very close alliance relationship today. Uh, and the leaders like each other. You cannot discount the importance of uh, pers personal connection, chemistry between the two leaders. It, that It really colors the entire alliance relationship. Um, and it's something that's often under underestimated. Um, in the case of South Korea today, you know, the relationship is strong. The, um, the uh, uh, South Korea has been fully on board with the United States in terms of the maximum pressure campaign of sanctions against North Korea. But it's no secret that the current South Korean government is a progressive government, a politically progressive government. And in South Korea, politically progressive doesn't have anything to do really with social issues. It entirely has to do with North Korea and um, a desire to follow strategies aimed more at inter-Korean reconciliation rather than outright pressure. And so that, frankly, has created some tension in the relationship because uh, North Korea is carrying out an unprecedented level of testing, nuclear testing and uh, missile testing. Um, which compels the United States to follow one path. Uh, but you have a South Korean government that is following that path, but also always asking, can we go to the other path? When can we go to the other path? You know, the so-called engagement path. And, and so that, you know, frankly creates some tension in, in the relationship. But it's not tension that's unmanageable. Um, the last time I was in government, when I was at the White House on the NSC, I had the Korea account and... Uh, our counterpart in Seoul was the last progressive government in Korea uh, 10 years ago, the last time they had a p politically progressive government. And during that time, um, you know, there was tension in terms of policy towards North Korea, but at the same time, South Koreans sent the third largest ground troop, con troop contingent to Iraq. Uh, they sent PRTs to Afghanistan. We did the free trade agreement. Uh, South Korea got NATO plus three status. They were included in the creation of the G20, the group of 20. So there were a lot of positives that can still happen in the relationship, even if there is, you know, a difference of views in how best to manage the North Korea issue. You also mentioned something that I want to kind of bring into the discussion, and that's the territorial disputes in the South China Sea. Um, and this is, I think, par for the course when you're talking about uh, regional politics that um, you're going to have issues that have sort of some kind of strange alignment or, or um, what I guess, I guess what I mean by that is on one hand, we're trying to bring to bear our alliance partners, South Korea and Japan and others um, and China to sort of solve the North Korea mm -hmm. issue, uh, while at the same time you have um, pretty strong antipathies uh, between some of those people that we're trying to get all on one side of the table. Uh, re uh, re regarding another issue and mm -hmm. these maritime disputes. Um, how, how is that best managed? 
Um, well, it's not easy, uh, quite frankly. I mean, in terms of um, the United States and Japan, there's really little space between them. I think uh, Japan is as concerned about South uh, about China's island building campaign in the South China Sea, um, and so there's really little um, disagreement between the United States and J Japan with regard to things like. Um, freedom of navigation operations, uh, you know, better intelligence coverage of, of the Chinese activities in the South China Sea. Um, with South Korea, again, it's a little bit harder because for South Korea, their entire prism on the world is defined through security on the peninsula and the North Korea problem. Whether that North Korea problem is defined in terms of how to engage them, how to sanction them, or unification, in South Korean minds, all of those things require, if not strategic understanding with China, real cooperation with China. And so for that reason, the South Koreans have always been more hesitant to say something about what China's doing in the South China Sea. Um, and uh, I think less willing to cr openly criticize activity by, uh, by China in the South, in South China Sea. So. Um, uh, you know, when the, as the United States tries to coordinate, you know, these differing interests um, to work together on one problem, but then to get pieces of that to work together on another problem, it's a bit like herding cats. You know, sometimes it works, sometimes sometimes it doesn't. But but I think overall, the important thing to remember about these alliances, even though they may have differing interests at the time, is that these are. First, they're undergirded by the mutual defense uh, commitment, um, and that, for the most part, has been the United States defending these countries. But at the same time, you know, during the global war on terror and uh, and other cases, we saw these allies coming to the defense of the United States again, whether it was uh, South Korean troops, ground troops in Iraq, or whether it was the Japanese Navy in the Indian Ocean supporting Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan. So it is mutual in that sense. And then the other thing is we have to remember is that these alliances are deeply rooted in common values. I mean, these are the three liberal market democracies in the region. Um, there are more things in the world that these three countries agree on than they disagree on. Um, and uh, these have been both, these alliances have been both the foundation of the U.S. post-war presence in Asia, as well as the foundation of the incredible success of South Korea and Japan, you know, since the end of the Second World War today, where South Korea is the 11th or 12th largest economy in the world. Japan is the third largest economy in the world. Um, th these are unique alliances. I think in the history of alliances, these are truly unique alliances. And so there's a resiliency there, even though we may disagree on issues time to time. Well, thank you very much. Um, there's a, a long list of questions I think I could continue asking, um, but we'll leave it there for now. Uh, Dr. Cha, thanks for, thanks for joining us. Thank you, it's my pleasure. Hey, thanks again for listening to the MWI podcast. One quick thing before you go, you can follow MWI on Twitter, like our page on Facebook, and connect with us on LinkedIn. 
It's a great way to stay up to date on our new articles, podcasts, and more, and to get in touch with us if you have feedback about any of it. Thanks again.